welcome to the Theology Podcast. Glad to have you with us once again for another virtual podcast experience. And uh, we are uh, just the three of us today, the, the normal posters. And uh, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut. And uh, Glenn Sunshine is coming. He's actually way out today. He's, uh, <laughs> he's calling in from as far as he's ever called in uh, before. So where are you, Glenn? And yeah, well, uh, introduce yourself. This is actually sort of my ultimate social distancing background. Uh, <laughs> I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University and senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And it looks like you're appearing on either Nova or on Cosmos, you know, with the Carl Sagan right now. Where are you? Um, that's a really good question. When I figure it out, I'll let you know. <laughs> looks like you're above the earth. It looks like I see Scandinavia over your left shoulder. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that may be right. Yeah, looks, that's kind of looking like the Caspian Sea there. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> and and it, the the image though is is perfect for the Cartesian ego that that kind of uh, completely uh, impacts just about all of Western thinking, and that's that that we basically are isolated individuals in the cosmos, <laughs> right, right, disconnected nice from everyone and everything else. <laughs> which is a nice segue for you, Tom. I mean, you're you're, you're, you're it's your show today, but introduce yourself first, and then let's jump in. Okay, I'm Tom Price, a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And yes, topic of the day. Um, well, in, in one sense, it's, it's going to be a topic about um, dualisms. I'll explain what that is, or improper ways of, of reality being understood and related to. And then a lot of what I will say you know, or or I'll kind of define as improper either or positions um, that impact the West, impact Western thinking, impact the church in particular in the West, um, not only in the West, but uh, it definitely has wreaked its havoc here. And so I'm going to look at it from a, a few different angles, and I'll be developing some of, th some of the themes we've hit on before related to this issue. And then I'm going to kind of throw out kind of more episodes of it. Um, and then we can kind of, you know, kind of go from there. Um, so what do I mean by um, improper dualisms? Well, we've talked in other shows um, about, you know, the kind of ways in which we understand reality. There can be something called kind of monism or oneism, as, as some have called it, which basically is there's one kind of stuff that everything is kind of a... a you know, part of um, naturalism, materialism are forms of this. Now, it can be a little tricky because within monisms or one-isms, you can develop two-isms or dualisms. What you do is you have that one become such that it transforms or, you know, through through processes going on in the one stuff develop emerge you know emergent things um, that become their own kind of thing and in some sense for example if you're a materialist 
through natural processes, the human being comes about by chance. It's made up of the one stuff, but it's so made up that that human develops these properties like consciousness that become almost another kind of stuff. And that stuff oftentimes is in continuity with the one stuff, but it has certain properties that make it different, distinct, that allow it to be different and sometimes be opposed to the other stuff that hasn't emerged with that particular development. Think of human consciousness um, in that understanding. So the consciousness for some of the one stuff could emerge and become a property of something like a human. It completely depends on the material, the one stuff, but it is something that isn't reducible to that without it being configured the way that it has evolved. And so what happens there? Well, you can have a certain kind of dualism develop where the stuff like the human being who's conscious can be in conflict in some cases with the rest of the stuff. And this could almost be one kind of way in which modern Western people moved away from Descartes, who held a two-stuff view, but still kept a lot of what Descartes wanted to hold on to, that there was still a conflict between the human being and their distinct kind of consciousness and the rest of things. So in a weird way... Yeah, let's mm -hmm. let's stop here and just sort of flesh this out a little bit for, for our listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, some folks are probably familiar with Karl Marx's understanding of reality as being, you know, just essentially matter and energy and so forth. In other words, he was a materialist, but he, uh, he believed that human culture and consciousness and all these things were emergent properties yes. that, that you can understand a society best from understanding how power in other words, uh, how, you know, the energy, you know, understood within a human society was distributed. Mm-hmm. And so the conflict that occurs in a system like that would, would, would be a, a kind of consciousness, uh, you know, sort of that is divided, you could say, and is, is, is sort of, you know, sort of in conflict with itself, but at its basic level, it's really matter that's at yeah. conflict with itself. So that'd be white one. Now you know you mentioned Descartes. Now folks may find Descartes the name familiar because of maybe they've come across a reference to something that's Cartesian, or yeah. maybe I think therefore I am. Or I am, yeah. It's usually that. But when we, but what you're getting at is that he was a, he was a dualist at a, at a fundamental level. Yes. He believed in two things, so there were two substances. You know, thought and extension, right? Yeah. yeah. And but he couldn't figure out how they connected. <laughs> and that's, I think, where his yeah, that was probably one of his big in problems. And it, and it is the way he conceived of of the kind of what someone calls the ghost in the machine, or the um, you know, there's there are other ways of referencing. It. And and a lot of times the church, because it wants to hold to the, the material and the immaterial aspects of the human, have have kind of um, ran and thought Descartes was just a great example of what we all should be holding. And I think that's one area in which a lot of these kind of bad dualisms and, and bad uh, either ors developed as that sort of starts to get into modern Western culture, instrumental reason, 
and the like, and, and, and actually this kind of way of reinterpreting Christian salvation is basically securing, you know, uh, the, the transcendent I within, the ghost within, from all of the kind of uncertainties that the material and institutional and, and relational impact us with. So we'll, we'll get back to that. Um, but then there, there, there's the other side is that you see, especially the church want to basically see, follow the kind of naturalist interpretation and just see it as sort of an epiphenomena, the, 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 the distinct aspect of the human, the immaterial aspect, as merely an epiphenomena of the material. Now, that, that's, a, that's a funny thing to, to sort of embrace as a Christian. <laughs> and, and we see it all over the place. Yes. By the way, your cat was just behind you. <laughs> One of them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they they there are people at home that are saying, who's that cat? <laughs> that's, Ro- that's Rosie. Uh, Sophie is reclining in the, in the in, you know, well-fed in the, in the window. And the, the boy cat, Miku, he's around here somewhere, too. He may show up. <laughs> okay, so folks at home if you see a cat it's uh it's normal it's a cat not a rat <laughs> and if you hear one it's probably mine <laughs> <Face the cat. laughs> yeah the, so um, let's, let's get back to this issue though of this weird development Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you know. One of the things I've observed, and and I, I don't want to take you too far afield, but maybe this could be folded into what you're talking about. One of the mm-hmm. things I've observed is a kind of uh, weird, you know, sort of uh, acquiescence to this within Christian mm-hmm. circles. And um, it, there's, you know, I think this is where some of the social justice stuff comes from. But I also think that um, it's a kind of embarrassment with the supernatural i mean there's a sense in which we don't want to own that anymore we want we want to be respectable um Mm -hmm. and put things in terms that are you know easy to digest for our scientist friends and stuff i I, i'm just guessing well i think actually where we're going on that score is um we're heading towards schleiermacher at this point Um, now uh what happens is in the late 18th, early 19th century, you get this big push toward uh, science and the idea that science can explain everything. And Schleiermacher was a theologian who came along and said basically, well, you know, look, science works really well and, it, and the empirical method, that makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot of things you can learn from it, but there are other kinds of knowledge out there. And in particular, there's a kind of emotional, experiential knowledge that religion gives you that is true and valuable that you can't get from science. Now, what Schleiermacher, in effect, did is he he ceded all the ground of the physical world to science and said religion has nothing to say about that. But... He turned religion into a kind of emotional experience. And I think if you look at a lot of evangelical churches today, what we're really seeing is Schleiermachian Christianity. Yes. There's a lot I want to say on that. So um, maybe it's it's a good time to do it. Um, Yeah, I I think especially one of the big arenas in which I think both of these trends towards um, a kind of a dualism like Descartes 
in the in in the way in which you have this kind of the self identified as basically an immaterial substance that sovereignly stands over the rest of our extended being our material being so therefore what is fundamentally threatening are all the material and this worldly things that somehow I don't have control over to be a secure self. So a spirituality that um, anchors my inner self, my inner life, in a way that it is able to, to, to weather the storm of embodied life well, um, starts to connect with this strong, move in the pietistic Christianity of moving away from the institutional embodied interactive world towards the inner self, the inward self, and making what is central to Christianity this, this inner, inner life alone and, and, and my individual experience of God and the way in which that um, is true and proper Christian faith and religion. Now, Schleiermacher is an interesting point because he brings in something that allows exactly this flattening of things, and then this kind of introduces, a, you know, a new set of improper ways of relating church, life, doctrine, and the rest. Because Schleiermacher, like you said, he was aware that the empirical method through science and reason um, was kind of our way to knowledge and, and knowing. And, but what he did is he almost does what William James, the famous pragmatist, does, is he wants to say, I want a more radical empiricism. So he doesn't really take it, even though he assumes a lot of Descartes, he doesn't want to take it where Descartes into kind of intellectual, intellectism or whatever, intellectualism or rationalism. He takes it the other direction and wants this raw, undefined immediacy to the real i.e. that which is beyond the rational and therefore beyond the human, if you will. Um, and so that becomes kind of the springboard for this, this life that transcends or is, is maybe in conflict with reason and reason's institutions. And, and, you know, so you get, in a weird way, this kind of Rousseau, um, or maybe I, I don't need to even bring Rousseau in at this picture, kind of an easy connection to the romantic understanding of the self as fundamentally self-expressive and interested in life beyond the institutional and the rational. And it's the expressive. So there's a lot going on here. But what, what you have is you hit it right on the nose. There, there's this with pietism, and I'm talking pietism in the sense where doctrine and life start to become conflictual unless doctrine is about what it does for my spiritual life and growth individually. Right. Uh, and go ahead. Well, it, you lose any, you, you lose any referent outside of the self at that point. Uh, even your, even Christ is understood as the sort of that inner voice. Um, not, uh, you know, an enthroned, uh, you know, divine son who governs all things. It's, uh, he's, he's, he's now made it sort of portable. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, and, mm -hmm. and we're, we're, 
where I see this going, what, what, what I find really curious is the role that conversionism <clears throat> plays in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, all right, when, when you look at, you know, when you look at the early church, it was all about missions activity, therefore all about conversion. Once the church gets established, however, and children start growing up in the church, you actually don't find people talking about conversion in the same way among what Reformed people would call children of the covenant. You know, even when you get into the Reformation, Luther has a conversion experience, Calvin has a conversion experience, but they don't expect that from children who grow up in the community. And one of the things that, you know, I'm working my way right now, preaching my way through the book of Acts, and uh, there are a couple of very uh, sort of anomalous realities, and I mean anomalous in the sense that what's going on in the book of Acts is not what goes on in the church today. <laughs> right. So, so one of the things that's very clear and distressed repeatedly is that the issue uh, that everybody has to be to be told uh, about, or the, the the thing that everybody needs to be informed about, is the resurrection. Wherever you know the apostles are preaching, that's where they go. So you have a, an, an event that happened. It's it's an objective reality. It's something that occurred in time and space, uh, and and we have witnesses, and we're here to tell you that. You know, this is what happened. And the Holy Spirit is a witness to the resurrection. So what happens is that when the people hear the good news that, you know, Christ has been raised from the dead, the Holy Spirit says, you know, yeah, yep, he did. <laughs> and, that, and, that's what, and that's what people are experiencing. Uh, they're, they're not experiencing uh, sort of in a sense of inner bliss, right. uh, you know, <laughs> a and sense of God loves me. <laughs> yeah. That, the, the whole thing on conversion, you see that starting with the Anabaptists, then curiously enough, it becomes a major emphasis in the Puritans. And from there, and they run into all kinds of problems with what you do with people who aren't, don't have a conversion experience who've grown up in the church. So you've got things like the halfway covenant that's established in New England and so on. But then it goes from there into revivalism. And what ends up happening then is evangelicalism really combines conversionism, which is really kind of an aberration in church history. It combines this conversionism with the Schleiermachian emphasis on emotive experience with the net result that well, I mean, how many people grow, who grow up in evangelical churches receive Christ over and over and over and over and over again because they're not sure they did it right the last time? And well, the, it, the emphasis is the experience. It's not your living faith now. It's the, <laughs> have the right experience. Well, you're, you're, you know, those are our Arminian friends. So just so that we're clear that... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. if, well, in fact, I think we see it in broad-based evangelicalism. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, I agree. I, you know, and I, I did the uh, the sawdust trail thing. I, you know, I, I know all about all about that world. But uh, you know, within within the, the the proper, you know, sort of historically reformed understanding, you never really, <laughs> you know, you might have an inner witness, 
after years and years of uh, praying for it or something. But what you had with, with you know, revivalism was this instantaneousness, that the sort of the expectation that because I laid my all upon the altar, you know, that there would be something that occurs that has a kind of psychological inner quality to it. Uh, yeah. You know, well, there's that, that the big key there is the psychological. Um, and, and so that's how the conversion experience starts to be interpreted. It starts to become almost, uh, it almost becomes like a machine that you can kind of with the right uh, points and steps you can keep uh, repeating um, in some cases. And it's fascinating because William James, who was someone, he was a psychologist uh, in particular, but I think he was also a, he did his degree in chemistry from Harvard, if I remember, um, late 1800s, wrote the very famous varieties of religious experience. And one of the things that fascinates him in this, and, and I think it's telling why this fascinates him at that particular time, because this is a time, of course, at which pietistic and, and kind of evangelicalism with this kind of pietistic emphasis was really it taken root in, in, in the psychology of, of America in particular, New England in its own way. Um, and, and so one of the things he is, that he is very fascinated by the kind of way in which this, this very vibrant, living, individualistic faith, and he thinks that's what makes it in particular attractive, um, is, 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 you know, kind of a real deal, but it's not concerned about, for example, one of the things is it's, it's whatever orients you towards finding this inner peace and life from whatever you conceive God to be, right? So look at the way theology already is downplayed. doesn't matter what the object of faith is. It's not the resurrection of Christ, you know, it's whatever, it is that you relate to in such a way that allows you to overcome the kind of despair that we psychologically get into depression and brings a sense of peace, harmony with, you know, the higher part of the universe, if you will. Um, but he uses all the language of conversion, saintliness, but he understands them as psychological states. Um, this is one of the things um, early Karl Barth grew up in the context of, of pietism. His mother read him uh, the famous, you know, stories of the Pietists. Uh, she was from a long line of pat ministers, pastors in the Pietist tradition. And his father as well was very fond of him. And if you notice, his father, Fritz Bart, has a, a, you know, he was a little critical of some of the kind of legalistic tendencies in Pietistic circles, which is another one of these kind of strange um, but he, he made a list of what he found very fascinating there. Um, and the way he put it was, first of all, let's see if I get the right um, list of these things. Yeah, here's the list one. The priority of life over doctrine, right? So, so here is this, this either or, or if it's not a full either or, there is a conflict. It's either life or doctrine, right? I've heard it a million times. Doctrine divides, right? Yeah, how much? Um, the second feature is, you know, um, a strong emphasis on this spiritual rebirth. Of course, the gospel is you must be born again. You can't even see the kingdom of heaven. But there is a distinct character to this kind of experience, right? Um, another one is the close connection of justification and sanctification. There, there comes your, your strange elitism, if you will, because this is what attracted William James. 
it wasn't the normal Christians who grew up in church and through the, the, the means of grace that fascinated him. It was the trendsetter, trendsetters, almost the spiritual elite that were the ones who had these fantastic experiences that founded the religious movements. So Luther's experience of angst and then the peace of God, that would have fascinated Jane. That would have been something. And what that does, similar to pietism, it separates the regular Orthodox church members from this kind of spiritually enhanced that have this true living faith. So what you begin to have, again, is kind of a way for Christians to kind of mark out in, within the visible church those which are really also the invisible church versus those that are merely part of the visible church. Anyway, I said a lot, so I'll just... <laughs> well, you know, there are a lot of things here to reflect on. You know, one of the th those things is the difficulty that some people who are, you know, part of this revivalist, you know, pietist strain of Protestantism you know, how difficult they, 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 you know, it is for them to sort of rebuild their, you know, to sort of get back to the regular world. Um, you know, for example, I, I was, uh, uh, I'm familiar with this kind of stuff because I was immersed in it as a teenager. Um, I've got an odd background, as you guys know, but uh, by the time I was a teenager, I had become friends with a preacher's son. And then that was, it was very much part of the revivalist tradition. And there are many things about my experience uh, in that world that I, I, you know, uh, look back on very fondly. But there were also things that were really problematic, as they say, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and one of those <laughs> problems is how do you connect all of this stuff with with life? I remember thinking that you you know your times at camp meetings and revivals that was like real, the real thing. And then the, the mundane church sort of yeah. routine was kind of just to get you to back to those other moments. You know, it was, it, that was yeah. like, it was definitely first class, second class kind of yeah. dynamic. And of course you see this in the holiness traditions develop into a complete theology, right? The, the perfectibility, right. the, the fully sanctified. And then you, right. you know, the, the, those who are endowed with the gifts, right. And uh, right. the more spectacular gift, the more spiritually elite uh, one is right. or more yielded. Um, right. and, and so, yeah, you develop a lot of very problematic things for, for, uh, first of all, for a kind of, for a church that thought this emphasis on, the individual and their inner life in relation to God was going to actually bring about um, a flattening of hierarchies and institutional authoritarianism. It ends up playing out in a, in a, in a kind of a new form of it. Um, and then what you... Mm -hmm. it, what, what's interesting about that to me is I, I've been teaching a lot of this stuff in my History of Christianity class virtually at, at Central. And... Um, What's interesting about it is that if you look at the evangelicals, the early evangelicals, they do have this emphasis on conversionism and things like that, but they've also got a huge emphasis on social engagement. Yeah. But what they are about is, you know, they're mostly at this point post-millennials. What they're about is trying to uh, work to eliminate sin in all its forms in their own lives, but also in society. So yeah. tend to have a very, very activist kind of approach. Yet, curiously enough, their descendants in the holiness movement 
Some of them are going to continue that, but a lot of them retreat into this very personalized, pietistic, individualist kind of thing, particularly as you're moving into the 20th century. Yeah, it's well, that, that's another place at which you, you have these strange kind of either ors develop. You're either going to have the, the, you know, the ones who preserve the life of inner faith. And, and you have it really break. And this is something I, I think I, I wanted to make the connection. We mentioned Schleiermacher, but um, one of the things Karl Barth found very easy as growing up in pietism was to step into Protestant liberalism. I mean, that was that for him carried on pietism and its inner certainty and allowed for all that all of the rationalism to go to work all it wanted to on the bible and higher criticism and undermining and, and as a matter of fact he saw it a good thing that orthodox belief in christianity when he was a liberal should be dismantled he saw this as nothing but uh, ossification of religious experience a stifling of that vibrant inner life and so if we're going to talk doctrine, we need to talk about it completely almost as these spiritual psychological states. Um, one pastor had put it this way, it's not about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It's that in you, Christ dies, resurrects, right? This, this in, moving to the inward, like very fashionable with all of spirituality and the enlightenment, right? Are the guy, is the guy you were quoting there or paraphrasing, was he, was he a self-identified evangelical or was he a liberal? Um, the one I was ta- uh, mentioning uh, with that direct quote, um, he, he, was, he would have identified as so, sort of a European form of evangelical pietist in that day, because yeah. he was doing sort of revival meetings, and that's where that kind of phrase came. And Bart, when he heard it as a young liberal, said, there's a lot there I like, there's a lot I don't like. Matter of fact, uh, Mott, uh, the famous, uh, I think it was from Moody, John Mott, was, it, was that his... Uh, evangelical figure. I know he wrote s- several books, but he was speaking over that time, and it was all of this Dwight Moody kind of um, pietistic Christianity, and and he there are a lot of things he loved about it, and, and we all should love about it, that people really um, have th- this kind of passion for, for God and Christ, but but what ends up happening is it has all of the same things Protest- that, that make for Protestant liberalism to be the next step. Well, you see, I'd, I'd like to explore that a little bit because, mm-hmm. you know, my, my experience, and it's probably the experience for you guys as well, is that, is that uh, as I reflect back upon my, my days in that milieu, that world, um, there was this incongruity. There was a kind of uh, liberalism of sentiment, what you just described. You know, yeah. it would never be, ta- it would never be, it you know sort of labeled that it'd be put in the terms of you know do you feel your faith or 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 yeah. do you you know do you really have an authentic personal relationship with God you know and that yeah. kind of thing but then you'd have a, a kind of salute to things like the divinity of Christ or to the resurrection as an historical event or to creation as something that God had brought about or God, you know, in fact, in a very rigid and, and sort of uh, ossified way, it's, you know, of thinking and in the sense that people would talk about creation as an event that occurred once upon a time, but not think about God's ongoing sustaining of the created order or yeah. how he 
you know, gives that order meaning as he orders it to its fulfillment or anything like that. But, but there is this weird kind of, of um, William Jamesian faith yeah. by the most sort of, you know, salt of the earth people you can describe. And at the same time, a kind of, uh, I guess, you know, a different kind of sentimental attachment to just certain forms like family life, uh, yeah. you know, mom and dad and apple pie and Norman Rockwell and all that kind of stuff. But I think they're ch the children of those people grew up to become radicals in some cases. And mom and dad could never figure out what happened. Yet mom and dad may have planted the seeds of that radicalism without realizing it because of this William Jamesian spirituality. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what I find interesting as we're, we're thinking this through is um, looking at the way a lot of uh, modern fundamentalists look at something like Genesis. The important thing about Genesis 1 and 2 is that it gives us a narrative history that is scientifically accurate about the creation. And because it is scientifically accurate, to quote um, one of the creationist organizations, this gives us confidence in the rest of the Bible. Is that all it does? And that <laughs> kind of is a pretty large point. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, it, it, we, we talked about facts versus meaning before in here. Um, you know, the, the, the problem is they are looking at Genesis through the lens of modern rationalistic scientism, and therefore the only category they have is science and approaching it. And as a result, they lose a boatload of the meaning that is in that story. I don't want to get into the whole creationism thing. There's yeah. a place for that. But the very fact that that's the only thing that they see in Genesis yeah. is kind of disturbing. And it's an example of this, this sort of intellectual bifurcation we have between the physical and the spiritual. Yeah. It, 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 it's the other side in uh, uh, it, of not so much, even though it, it, I, I would argue there's a lot of Schleiermacher still going on in, in those, that kind of mm -hmm. thinking. Um, but it oh, is yeah. the move, it is the move towards um, uh, it, making empiricism as defined by science, the sole norm for all truth. Right. Um, and so, so yeah, what you have there is another one of those either or kind of pictures, either the kind of experiential, well, it, it's, it's not necessarily either or, but you, you're, you're stuck with certain options. Rationalism conceived along Cartesian grounds empiricism in the scientific kind of uh, approach in modern science, which I think incorporates a lot of, of Descartes, um, or this kind of radical empiricism that you have in, in liberalism in Schleimar. And they can kind of, they can form together in weird combinations. You're giving one in, in, in a certain hyper-fundamentalist reading of certain things, which is uh, was, which is completely foreign to the whole history of the church's reading of biblical texts up until the 17th century. Um, doesn't mean it's wrong per se, but it does mean that uh, 
but what, it's a little arrogant to presume that we needed the enlightenment to come about to give us epistemology to read the truth of scripture well. I, I, I just... I, <laughs> yeah, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's a deep irony there. <laughs> <laughs> there, there. There is a... Yeah. yeah and, I, well, I, to kind of a, a sort of flesh this out a little bit more is, is, is what you have is, I, I think, you know, sort of the strength of popular evangelical you know, uh, ministry is that it kind of meets people where they live. Yeah. The problem with it is that it only knows how to meet people where they live. <laughs> In other words, yeah. it, it doesn't have, an, it doesn't have an, any uh, understanding of how far our world has gone in its sort of wandering away from the truths of the faith so that these unconscious assumptions about the working yeah. of reality go unquestioned. Yes, yes. And and most of the ministers that I know simply have not been given the kind of education that would allow them to exegete the world and culture and stuff like that. Because I, I bet you a number of guys who maybe even are listening to this show have never had any you know, any sort of introduction to Descartes. Uh, yeah. The only thing they know about Karl Marx is maybe what stuff that they've heard on yeah. Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> and, and, and they, that's right. And little do they know, they're probably deeply that what they would hear about Descartes when they started to peel back their own skin, they would find out they held to most of it and and didn't even realize it. And they're filtering their interpretation of scripture through that. This is why one of what I'm after sort of is we're saying it here, for example, with the kind of biblicism that came into a certain strand of Protestantism. Um, which, yes, it, it edified, it taught people the core teachings of the Bible, the kind of thread of Scripture and all that good stuff, okay? But because it left itself on the Biblicist level, and it did not actually start to read Scripture, first of all, covenantally, um, but also in light of the realities Scripture is saying that it needs to be read into. Scripture is pointing to the way things are and the way that they should be understood, that understanding should be the hermeneutical frame for reading this. So as we grow in it, so scripture doesn't have a conflict between the metaphysical and, and the, 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 the simple statements that are put in scripture. Those things are held together. What, what am I saying here? When we only take just a passage of scripture or a proof text or a little context of scripture and make that the whole import of, of what the Bible teaches about something, we're left with very little resources to, to know how in the world to interpret it in terms of the big questions, but also in terms of the way in which it actually applies properly, right? Um, and so because of that, we're bringing in the metaphysical world of the culture that we are a part of, and we know very little of what the, the, the biblical metaphysic and, and what scripture is teaching to be actually allowing us to see how those passages of scripture are to be understood in light of the reality scripture is pointing us to rather than how they apply to my life defined as I experience it now. So that's one of the places is when we sever off the contemplative from the practical, that these are not part of a whole, but they're, it's either or, you know, either it's all about, you know, how scripture applies to my finances, uh, or it has nothing to do with my life other than just kind of make me feel good about God. Um, 
we run into problems, and this is one of them. We don't know how to read scripture properly, and therefore we don't know how to, to not absorb the culture and bring it into our interpretation and application. One of the ways that I, I've thought about, you know, how we can sort of recover the power of the resurrection, I think, you know, we've lost our ability to, to, to receive the good news. And, you know, and this is the odd thing, you know, without psychologizing it, yeah. you know, to the point where it doesn't seem to have anything to be, that it doesn't say anything about reality itself. It because it's apocalyptic. I mean, the the resurrection is an is an, an apocalyptic thing. Yes. So, uh, to, you know, and it had ramifications for everything. Everything from the way the world is ordered to our understanding of ourselves in the future to the way uh, the physical world is under is understood to have in terms of what it where it's going. And yes, so, and yeah, and in the way in which that that reality is present but it is present not merely in our inner feelings in life and see this is where i think one of the problems we think that our experience of god is truly an experience of god if it's direct and un and not mediated and that's exactly what the resurrection is not it's a bodily resurrection yeah it's and still a mediated resurrection well, one of the things, though, that I've thought about using as a way of describing it is it's like if I came and I said to, uh, to a room of people, there's a meteor streaking towards the earth that will destroy civilization. It will not only sort of affect our way of thinking and feeling, <laughs> but it's going to do something to the world. <laughs> yes, it's causing In other words, yeah, it's cosmic, and and the resurrection is that. I mean, it's that kind of thing. It's it's an announcement that reality has uh, changed. Yeah. That, in other words, our our, and this is why you know Paul is critical of the of Greek wisdom because the, the thing that Greek wisdom is wise about is the is a, a state of affairs that doesn't include the resurrection and could never anticipate it. Yeah. You know, you know, it's, there's no way that, you know, just working with, you know, observation and reason you could ever, it's, this is a black swan event. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, and, and the, the way in which, and, and I think this is, this is, I mean, even relating to the issue of the resurrection with, with the contemporary church, it's very much, it, on the one hand, it's this kind of, yes, I nod my head and assent to it as, as a happening, I confess it. Um, or, um, you know, I have, you know, or, or I have to kind of make it again. How in the world, it, it, on one level, resurrection, like you say, it's cosmic. So it isn't, first and foremost, a practical doctrine, if you mean by practical something now that I'm going to put to use for myself. <laughs> the practicality of it is the transformative aspect that all of reality and myself included now can participate in this new life. But how do I do it in faith? But in faith, what? Not as a direct, unmediated encounter, but a mediated one through what? Gospel, through gospel how blessed are the feet of those who bring good news through the apostles and the prophets through the church and the mediation of the means of grace the normative means of grace so 
what is the, the, the profound life of faith is one that is anchored in the institution of the church, the teachings of the church, the education and nurture of the church. Those are forming our life in such a way that they're oriented to the resurrection and the realities of resurrection in the right way. And see, this is what we get impatient with. Yeah, let me tie into this a little bit because I, I, I would like to sort of help people sort of under, understand this, this mediating power of the church. Um, so if, you know, the, if there were a meteor uh, streaking toward the church, if we didn't have a telescope that <laughs> showed us what was coming, uh, we wouldn't have the means to know what was coming. In other words, the knowledge of the meteor is mediated by the telescope. And then we need the person to interpret, you know, you know, the event using, you know, reason and mathematics, uh, you know, as, as, as reason is, you know, operating to, to understand the implications. And this, again, is a mediating role because this authority uh, is able to see the implications and tell us what they are. Uh, we can't just do that on our own. You know, we, we might hear that, you know, this meteor is coming, but we don't know how its magnitude. We don't know what, you know, what kind of force it will be, you know, striking the earth with. We don't know any of that kind of stuff without this authority mediating. So the church is the, is the mediating institution that brings the news that's so shocking, it really ought to have a psychological effect on you. <laughs> it, it really ought to change the way you think. You know, you really ought to repent. Repent, metanoia, you know, change your mind. You know, here's the news. The, you know, someone has been raised from the dead. And that very act, we know, you know, sort of what follows from that. This man is approved by God. This man is you know, the first of others who will be raised. You know, all these different kinds of things are, are follow from this. And this is about reality as it will be. Yes. One of the things that I've been thinking about as we've been talking about this is uh, what Francis Schaeffer used to call upper and lower story thinking, uh, technically the fact value distinction. And the idea here, and I think this is really central to the way a lot of people think, although I'm getting less and less sense that it's true of the current crop of college students. But in any event, generations prior to this have really thought of the world in terms of two levels. The lower level, as Francis Schaeffer has it, is the world of facts. It's empirical. It's observable, all of that. And that's the only area where you can really talk about knowledge in any kind of objective sense. The upper story is the world of values. This is religion, it's ethics, it's aesthetics, it's all of these things that are non-empirical. And as a result, they're a matter of opinion, they're a matter of taste, they're a matter of faith, something like that, but they're not really knowledge. And I think that this split that, we, that has been there really since, well, Schleiermacher, maybe earlier, I think that that split is really central to the way a lot of us see the world. So religion is relegated into the upper story. It's this matter of faith, it's a matter of values, uh, that kind of thing. But it's not exactly in the realm of objective fact. It's not in the realm of real knowledge. 
in at least it, you know, as popularly understood. So your meteor coming in, that's fact. That's, that's knowledge. That's something that's observable phenomenon. It's empirical. We can work with that. For most people, I kind of wonder if even Christians, if the resurrection is as factual in their mind as the meteor. I think that's a great question, Glenn, and my, my suspicion is that they don't think so. That's right. It's, a, it's an upper story. It's, it, that, I think for, that, for, for, for many, it's an upper story kind of rea- reality, if you will, or, or you know, kind of thing. Um, and, and, and yeah, it's something that, um, and, and again, there's, there's a lot of issue here. I mean, one of them is, is if it cannot be immediately encountered through our senses and in our experience, therefore it's, it's being real in any significant way is made problematic. And so, I mean, I, a good show would be kind of on what what you know i know there are a variety of christian approaches to truth but classically christian understanding has been one that would turn that whole understanding on its head right um and we've we've dealt with that in other shows um but but uh, that, that i mean i think that's an excellent point is is that this is the same thing with kind of say the boomer generation coming into the church right um the things as the embrace of the kind of Cartesian self in that generation um, and the focus on the individual and the expression of the individual and the kind of distancing and seeing as institutions as stifling true growth and life, getting in the way of what I want, my choices, my, my, my well-being. Um, this kind of therapeutic understanding of the church and um in the entertainment understanding uh, makes a lot of sense now your social justice generation are going to be similar to what carl bart said when he grew very tired of that uh, the liberalism that he saw taking root and i think one of the things when he became a pastor is he saw the economic social conditions um, and, and he was very attracted to, to what social justice people would be at the time, a kind of religious interpretation of socialism as the kingdom of God. Um, he, he later saw the problem with that and rejected it as well. Um, he saw it as kind of the polar opposite of the same kind of centering on, on the self and the experience and a point of contact between us and God that's immediate. Um, but one of the things he noticed is he said, how in the world can I sit here and talk all day in the church about how people need to have pr- pursue this inner life that they're able to have in such a cushy religious setting with all the suffering of the rest of the people in my community who can't don't have the time or leisure to sit around and focus on their own personal religious, you know, um, they're too busy trying to scratch for food. And his point was the limit, and this is what something Glenn mentioned earlier, is earlier forms of even evangelical Christianity understood these two connectedly. Um, it wasn't about, and so, but you see that the same spirit um, kind of came back into the evangelical church in the U.S. with the, the boomer generation and the kind of market and therapeutic culture to which this younger generation is starting to say, get out of the way. You people have been so focused on you and yourself that you completely, and so, you know, completely neglected the other, other side, the injustices, the sin in the world. So 
this is another point at which you have start to develop conflict, either ors or just kind of conflicting alternatives that come from a poor understanding of reality um, um, and, and, and Christianity on the whole. And so Christianity is a whole complex and it has a way of ordering and balancing every aspect of the individual and the personal, the, the communal, the relation of the church to the kingdom, the relation of the church and kingdom of the world to the world. It has all of these and it has a place for all of them. The question is how do we order them and how do we order them in a way that it isn't conflictual, but they, they are actually enhancing that whole vision. And I, I, I'll give a quote. Now this is not from somebody um, that is a Roman Catholic. This is uh, for those out there, Francis Turretin. <laughs> Um, and one of the things he says in his uh, Systematic Theology, Institutes of Electric Theology, on, on the church, is he gives a list of why the church. And one of the first reasons he said, the church is the primary work of the Holy Trinity, the object of Christ's mediation and the subject of the application of his benefits. It's not the individual, it's the church. And then the next thing he says that secondly, since there is no salvation out of the church, no more than out of the ark, nor does anyone have God as his father who does not have the church as his mother. He is not a Roman Catholic. He is a reformed in the line of John Calvin who said that very same quote. And so no salvation outside of the church. You don't have God the father if you do not have the church. And then he goes on to explain part of the, the role of the church, not only as a means of grace and of Christ's presence, but educational cultivation of forming the experiences in the right way through its teaching and practices. And so what you get here is something that isn't about the church as an institution for all its flaws as somehow getting in the way of our experience of Christ, but it is actually in the midst of all of those complications of sin, fallenness, its imperfection, and all of this, as it is the place of Christ's benefits, it is actually the sphere in which our encounters with God and each other are actually balanced out the right way. It's not an either or, or a conflict. Yeah, now this, is, this brings me back to the uh, faith value distinction once again. If values are not objective, they're personal, therefore, your religious faith is going to be a personal thing. It does not really involve the church. Further, if values are in the upper story and physical objects, empirical things are in the lower story, mm -hmm. then bread and wine and water in baptism and things like that can't have any real spiritual significance, which is why you get what in the Reformation was called sacramentarianism, although it's actually worse than Reformation sacramentarianism, where basically all communion is, is raising our glass to our departed leader. Yeah. It's not, there is nothing spiritual that happens to most evangelicals in communion. And you can tell that by when they walk into church and think, oh, all this stuff is on the table up there. We must be having communion this week. Right. Yeah, I, I was uh, you know, involved with a movement you know, when I was younger, uh, which uh, couldn't figure out what baptism was for. <laughs> In other words, if baptism with the Holy Spirit is what you're really after, what's this other thing? 
you know, is, is that kind of, you know, optional? Is it something uh, that we should just do because scripture is kind of command it and we just, you know, follow it rotely and we don't understand it having any kind of actual uh, mediating role in bringing about something that wouldn't happen otherwise. Uh, you know, there's this, uh, there's that kind of thing. I think, uh, you know, a lot of this, you know, uh, sort of, you know, sort of the, un- I, I, I call it hippianity. You know, there's this kind of uh, <laughs> Christianity that, that um, is, uh, you know, sort of in, completely understood within kind of a romantic kind of Rousseauian notion of the authentic. You know, it's real because I say so, so that even sacraments become kind of signs of my faith rather than signs of Christ and his work. It's all kind of, everything's self-referential, even the sacraments. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. <laughs> there it is, right there. It's how <laughs> you know that. You know. Peter said when he was standing before the Sanhedrin. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I mean, but that, I mean, that kind of, you know, for, again, there's your Cartesian safety, right? The heart is the place that nothing, nothing um, can, can challenge or, or do anything to. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's actually a retreat, a retreat into the subjective. You think that you're yeah. being bold yeah. by saying he lives within my heart, when in fact you've just conceded the entire history of the world, its future, everything objective. You've just made Jesus your inner friend. Yes, yes, and it's it's interesting. It's a it's a, a little taken a different direction with it, but um, it, this kind of goes to the the therapeutic. But you have this kind of I see this all the time now. People that on you know six seven days a week, for example, posting in in their social media, you know, Christ, His resurrection, but then they're they're posting endlessly, believe in yourself, and I'm, I'm oftentimes thinking about what, where does the the one end and begin here because I, I don't think it's because the self is so fused with the triune God that they, I think it's the other way around um, that, that God, all of this has been so wrapped up in the ego and, and the kind of their embrace of a certain identity, which gives them, a, a, you know, a, some therapeutic security. And, and also, you know, I'm not saying that there isn't a side of carousels and, tr- and true true ways in which a significant theology actually underwrites a proper wholeness. Um, but they make it all about that. And so because of that, but you know, endless shirts and slogans, believe in yourself, you know, um, you know this, this is not, this was never the confession of the church. <laughs> right. Well, you know, you know, we, I imagine that there are weird things that we can each point back to that were turning points in our lives that are kind of surprising for me. There were two books that uh, I read in the uh, late 80s, that uh, early 90s, that were really like heart attacks for me. One was Habits of the Heart by Robert Bella. Do you guys remember that one? Uh, he talks about the four kinds of individualism in the United States and how these different, you know, there's the, you know, basically, uh, well, what, uh, what's famous is Sheilaism. Um, is Sheilaism, what he did is he, he, he through a series of interviews, this is a sociologist, Robert Bella and his team of sociologists, they're out interviewing people and they identify four 
different kinds of individualism. There's biblical individualism, Republican individualism, expressive individualism, and utilitarian individualism. And expressive individualism is what we're talking about here. And they interview yes. a woman named Sheila, and they ask her about her beliefs. And she says, well, you know, I kind of <laughs> have, a, you know, it's something I call Sheilaism. <laughs> and she explains it, and I'm like, you know what? And as I'm reading this, book, I said, I know a lot of people in the church who would put it uh, maybe a little differently, but the substance is the same. But the, the other book that was that was like a, a real heart attack for me was uh, Harold Bloom's The American Religion. Have you guys ever read that? Yeah. You know, the the Yale. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I was, I was going to try to read it again today, but I didn't have the time. But yeah, that that plays right in. Oh man! I mean, here's a guy who's a is a secular Jew and a self-professed Gnostic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's in the Valentinus of all people. You know, he's and he's that much of a real Gnostic. And he says, yeah. "I just love the American religion." And when he describes the American religion, you know who he he says is its founder, John Wesley. Huh. Wow! And he, and he points back to Cane Ridge. We talked about revivalism. Yeah. And he starts drawing. Now, I'm not saying that everything that Harold Bloom says in that book is, is you know, yeah. gospel. That's but there's enough truth there that made me sort of like, wow. I mean, I got to step yeah. back and think about everything again. Uh, yeah. What I thought I was Christian faith, I might have been actually into Sheilaism with a Jesus gloss. Yes, and and that's uh, it was interesting because I was reading um, Nicholas Lash's book. Um, he wrote Easter in Ordinary, and it's a critique of William James in particular. And and he's describing James' understanding of 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 religious experience at, and, and in the kind of steps involved, kind of despair, and then finding in this higher part of yourself, basically God, which is the answer to it through this process. Um, he said, this is very familiar to evangelical Christians. And I, it was the same. It was the <laughs> same hit. And yeah, he, yeah. he writes as a Roman yeah. Catholic, but he, he, they can see very, very uh, easily the way in which this kind of thread um, is there. And then for us, why do I bring it up? Because we constantly are wondering what set the conditions, A, for the historic evangelical church to move so far from you know, a doctrinal center, a church center, um, to, to this embrace almost of a modern notion of self and, and then um, religion as sort of a, a Christian glossed self-help, um, a completely pragmatic approach to Christianity, and one in which basically the, the theological vision of the church, it's not merely just on the back, it's, it's almost eroded. It, it, is, it's, it's, it doesn't define the church and for all of Christian history, that, that was kind of its center pulse. So. Yeah, this is rich stuff. We should probably start wrapping things up. Uh, do you have any thoughts, Glenn, on, you know, this whole wide sort of range of matters that we've touched on that you want to reflect on as we conclude? No, I think I've said about enough for today. <laughs> And Tom, anything you else you wanted to, wanted to say? Make, maybe, you know, I know there are probably things you wanted to say you didn't get to, but is there anything you, you'd like to wrap up with? Are you there, Tom? I think we're having some connection issues. Uh, just you, a little bit, but I can, uh, can you hear me? 
Yep, yeah. we hear you fine. Go ahead and wrap okay. up your final thoughts, sir. Okay. Yeah, uh, so these are themes, again, I, I we'll be visiting from, from different angles over time. I, I want to continuously kind of bring them up and reflect on them with each of us because I know that uh, they impact the worlds in which we minister all the time and the way in which the Christian vision is interpreted. Um, and so being mindful of this stuff and then also knowing how, how, do, how do we provide a substantive Christian alternative that that is able to show that we don't need to move into these either or positions um, or simply a both and. But when we order things the right way, the way scripture sets out, the way the church has, has defined itself significantly from the biblical theological vision, we realize that we can order these in ways they don't have to become conflictual or either or, or, or simple ways of trying to put it together, but ways that actually reflect the reality that Christ has resurrected and we are the bearers of that in the world. Right, right. Yeah, as I, as I wrap up, as I reflect upon, say, you know, this whole matter of, the, of this uh, Christ as the meteor, you know, this, this uh, event, this, uh, this apocalyptic event, um, <laughs> you know, what, one, of the th- one of the implications of that, of course, is justification. Um, what we can do is read back. If there had been no resurrection, then Christ's death on the cross would have atoned for nothing. There are lots of Jewish rabbis who died on crosses, right? You know, there are lots of, uh, you know, rabbis who were martyred for the faith, you know, for, for their, their, their fidelity to the Jewish, you know, uh, the, the Shema, et cetera, you know. But there's only one who was raised. And so what, what occurs with that is there's something about this rabbi that God has declared just by raising him from the dead. And now that means that the cross itself is an atoning sacrifice. If there had been no resurrection, there would be no atoning sacrifice. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah. So that's, but, but this, this is like one of, this is, this is why um, even a focus on propitiation without a sense of the historicity of the resurrection becomes just a psychological kind of inward sort of, you know, thing, uh, rather than a, an event that says something not just about your inner life <laughs> or about you know, uh, your, your life, but, but, but about the future, about reality, about everything. And it's, it's recovering the, the historicity of the resurrection that, it, that I think will help heal these breaches um, and uh, help us to uh, transcend these, these, uh, these false dichotomies that you know, we've been talking about. But anyway, those are my, those are my thoughts in conclusion. Anyway, uh, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. As we conclude, we want you to know that we're in the midst of uh, putting the final touches on a, uh, an Indiegogo campaign. Last time we raised funds for the, for the podcast was about a year ago, actually more than a year ago. And during that time, we uh, <laughs> raised money for our uh, microphones and, and, and our recording equipment and so forth. And uh, it went great. 
We're going to do a, 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 another campaign, not with Kickstarter this time, but with Indiegogo. And it's going to uh, be a, a fundraiser to help us pay for a website and its ongoing maintenance. And uh, so be uh, kind of keep your eyes open for that. Uh, we're hoping to have that uh, up and going in a, in a few weeks. And if you like, you know, what we're doing and you'd like to be able to, you know, have a website that could give you resources and links and things that we've talked about, uh, then you'll be interested in, I hope, we hope, supporting this campaign. Uh, anyway, thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye now.